Hey everyone, J.D. Flynn here. This week's podcast is a kind of a short episode, and I just wanted to explain to you why. The reason why this week's podcast is a very short episode is because Ed uh, was in the midst of torrential thunderstorms during the recording of this podcast, which kind of cut out his internet and therefore the ability for us to be able to hear each other and podcast. So if you're feeling like you got gypped, I mean, you know, no accounting for nature, I guess. Anyway, enjoy the show, and we'll have an extra long episode next week just for you. Talk to you later. Hey, everybody. Welcome to The Pillar Podcast, the podcast that brings you great Catholic conversation each week. I'm your host and Pillar Editor-in-Chief, J.D. Flynn, and I am joined by my podcasting partner and Pillar co-founder, Ed Condon. And Ed, you are, as far as I can tell, um, in a bathroom right now. Uh <laughs> Is that am I am I reading the the science behind? Am I looking? Am I seeing things right? I mean, I, I'm no. looking. You know, Ed and I uh, uh, zoom while we you know we talk vis a vis the internet while we while we record this show, and I'm seeing like a hand towel and what looks to me maybe like a shower curtain. Are you are you in a bathroom right now? No, no, the not because I'm too proud, um, but the acoustics in the bathroom would simply not be what we needed it to be it would be too echoey i i am up at the lake and uh for reasons i'm sure we will discuss on this episode uh, i've had to do a lot of recording in the last couple of days um, yeah mm-hmm. for for other various media outlets who wanted the pillars take on certain things and i've been testing out different uh different rooms uh for optimum sound quality and particularly distance from most people because unlike the last time i was up here i'm i'm now here with my whole extended family, which involves... Oh, your whole extended family is up at your undisclosed location. Yes, and there's there's 16 children under the age of nine um, oh, yeah, on sure. the premises. So finding a place where you can record and be relatively undisturbed is... Um, it, it's a logistical project that you have to undertake with some deliberation. So, no, I'm not in a bathroom. Uh, what you're seeing, in mistaking for a hand towel, is actually a full-size towel, but you're just seeing part of it because it's draped over the top of a door to dry. I see. I see. Okay. Okay. So you're in a you're in a closet or something. Yes, I'm basically in a closet. Yes. Well, fair enough. That's you know what one does what one has to do, and you will find you know um, it won't be too long before even when you're at home in your home office in your home studio you're going to have to sort of navigate the challenge of a little a little crying uh, child and at the same time the ch- the the work of the podcast. So this is good practice for you. It, it is, although I'm looking forward to that particular challenge uh, that you sure. outlined for a number of reasons. One, because obviously it would be nice to have a child. Uh, but but two, to to make that happen, I'll probably have to relocate my my home office to the to the basement. In which case, um, I, I think I can pretty much claim the whole basement floor as a tax write off. Cause, and you have a fin- actually. I think they did away with that. I don't think there's that wow. home office tax write-off anymore. But you, 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 um, you, uh, no doubt are not um, itemizing in that way. Uh, I'm sure you're taking the standard deduction. I have no idea. Government paperwork okay. scares me so much. Okay, okay. Well, I think I don't. I don't think you're itemizing in that way. But more to the point, you've got a nice base. You've got a finished basement. It's a nice place, and so that's going to become your. Your your newsroom once the baby comes is that right? That's the idea so far. I mean, it's interesting that I'm terrified by things like tax returns and and things like that because um, on other subjects I have no problem getting my fingernails into into complicated paperwork. Right, I, right. I, I guess I just finance. exactly. It's I don't well. It's case in point. Um, if you get these things wrong, uh, you can get in <laughs> a lot of trouble. And um, indeed, I'm perfectly happy to find other people who've gotten in trouble, but I'm less eager to get into it myself. Um, yeah, even, good enough. Good enough. Yeah. Uh, so, okay, so you're up at the lake, and you're hiding out, and um, 
And how, how's the lake going? I mean, it must be, it, it appears to me that it must be chilly because you're wearing what looks to me like a, a sweatshirt, which is something I'm surprised to discover that you own. I, <laughs> well, no, this is, uh, this is some, um, th- this is a, uh, some athletic apparel that belongs to the local minor league team to oh, which I'm a season ticket holder. So I have that so that when I go to games, I can, I can make chit chat with the players and let them know that I'm on their side <laughs> and that sort of stuff. Uh, but no, I'm, and do they I, appreciate that? Like, Hey, that, that dude's talking to us again. I mean, do they, maybe, they I don't know. maybe when I have a baby with me, they'll, they'll be more amenable. Maybe, they'll find that. Yeah. Actually, we'll see. Um, but no, the lake, uh, has been, has been nice. Uh, it, the weather has turned in a big way. We've had, um, 24 hours of near constant thunderstorms so far. So cool. It's, uh, it, it's gotten a little bit, um, more indoorsy, which the place is definitely not built to be. So there's that, mm-hmm. uh, but otherwise, no, it's, it's been pleasant. I had, I had imagined taking a day or maybe even two off that has not happened. Um, because as I expect, we're about to discuss, um, no sooner did I get up here, then, uh, something happened. Uh, yeah. You know, it's, it's a funny thing. You wait for five years for one indictment on Vatican financial crimes and suddenly 10 come along at once. That's true. When, and we're going to talk about that before we do though, I, um, I just want to make mention of the fact that um, my uh, my wife was um, – I, I was going to ask you about your 4th of July so you could ask me about my 4th of July so I can make this mention, but I'm just going to do it this way so we can get to the work. My wife was in South Bend, Indiana this weekend. Um, we sort of had a, um, a ramshackle 4th of July, if you will, because my wife was in, in South Bend, Indiana this weekend for the baby shower of – uh, a pillar listener, and it was really uh, cool. A, a, a lady that my wife has been friends with for um, I don't know, long time, twenty years, I guess. Uh, but Kate came home and told me that um, you know, at the baby shower, people were asking her questions about the pillar and the pillar podcast, and um, and she was she had that combination of both being proud and sort of being annoyed that the pillar had um, leached its way into into a, a space as as a as protected as, um, and as protected safe. Protected as a baby shower in a certain I way. I can match yes. you there because um, about two weeks ago, my, my wife uh, was was had a had a baby shower thrown for her so mm-hmm. that she could meet other uh, mothers who have or will have children of a similar age to our, our pending child. Um, and, and my wife, you know, was, was meeting all of these women for the first time and was sort of asking polite questions about, oh, it's really lovely. And, and who's your husband and what does he do and things like that. And basically all of them said, well, we know who your husband is and we know what he does. <laughs> and, um, there, there was no, there was no sort of divided, uh, reaction on, on my wife's part about, you know, being sort of secretly proud and at the same time, a little annoyed. She was just vexed. <laughs> um, she didn't like it at all. Well, before we move on to the big stuff, Wait, I, I, have to I, have, I asked one more, one more question about this though. Um, did Mrs. Flynn give a pillar onesie? She didn't give a pillar once, you know, and that's kind of my fault because I forgot to mention to her that she could have. I'm going to send – so the lady having a baby has a good friend, a really good friend of ours, a good friend of both of ours named um, Sarah. And uh, uh, Sarah from South Bend, if you're listening, sounds like a radio thing to say, um, but a good friend of ours named Sarah. So I'm going to send uh, uh, baby Sarah uh, or Sarah's baby rather a, a pillar onesie. And uh, if you're interested in a pillar onesie, of course, you can find one uh, from the link on our site to the place where you can order things with our logo on it. Uh, but I'm going to send pillar, uh, Sarah a pillar onesie, and then uh, Kate stayed with another friend of ours, a great friend of ours, who uh, is also a pillar listener. So I'm going to send her – well, she's not a baby, so I'm just probably going to send her a pillar shirt. But, yeah. That's nice. Mm-hmm. Okay. Good commercial. Well done. Okay. While Kate was um, – while Kate was in South Bend at a baby shower, uh, I was home with the kids, and um, 
uh, on Saturday, like Friday night going into Saturday, none of them slept. And the reason that none of them slept is because people around here were lighting off a lot of firecrackers and fireworks, kind of pre-gaming the 4th of July, if you will, for, for a couple of days. And so the kids were kind of waking up and going back to sleep and waking up and going back to sleep. And finally, around like 3 o'clock, the kids were all like awake and wide awake because the firecracker thing, it, although it ended at midnight, it had sort of disrupted things enough that they were wide awake. And uh, And so, you know, it was one of those nights that was just like one hell of a night and uh and the uh, the downside of that is that it was but the upside of that is that at four o'clock uh, i was looking at my phone um you know as one does and i decided to take a minute to look at the bulletino the daily news bulletin uh from the uh holy see's press office and ed what did i discover at four o'clock in the morning uh from the bulletino uh the bulletin of the holy see's press office now you discovered a list of 10 individuals um i think it'd be fair to say all of them well known to you and i and perhaps listeners of this podcast had been indicted for financial crimes by the vatican city state prosecutors um and and you then very kindly called me and uh i'll, I'll be honest when you called me at um it was six your time it was like yeah five forty-five, six. Um, where I was, uh, you woke me up. I'm, I'm not too proud to admit it. Uh, I, I had not expected anything coming out at Roman noon on that Saturday. So I hadn't gotten up to check it. I was, um, I, I was sleeping and, uh, I'll be honest when I picked up the phone, you said, I read this link. You're not going to believe what just happened and sent it to me. And I was trying to load the link and I was thinking, Oh God, has the Pope died? Has something terrible and happened? You know, I feel terrible because I sent it to you first in Italian. So I woke you up at I know. You know, 4.45 in the morning or whatever and said, read this Italian, which I feel, which I'm, you know, well, in I didn't have my glasses on. And I, so I was, and it was dark in the room. And so I was screwing up my eyes, trying to read my iPhone screen. It was, it was a mess. But, um, when, when I did realize what I was reading, uh, I woke up fairly quickly Yeah, and, uh, it was a lovely morning's work. It was if I if you got to get up at six in the morning on a Saturday to go to the office, this is the reason. Because this is we got to work right away and we got a story out and then some more. Um, I just put on I don't know Little Mermaid two or something and got to work. But this for the for the kids. Uh, that's not my ordinary background work. No judgments. No judgments. <laughs> Safe space. This is a very big deal. What happened on Saturday is a very big deal. And just to summarize again, if you haven't already read it. Um, on Saturday, ten individuals uh, were indicted by the uh, the prosecute the Vatican City State prosecutors um, for crimes including extortion, money laundering, um, abuse of office. Ed, what are some of the other crimes? Uh, embezzlement, embezzlement, forgery, thank you. yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, uh, all of the financial crimes. Really, it, it's pretty. It's pretty colorful. Um, the most prominent individual who was. Um, indicted is a person who we have been spending a lot of time covering you and I for years now, Cardinal Angelo Becciu, who was at one time the sort of second in command of the Vatican Secretary of State and uh, and then and then had another office in the Roman Curia and then last year was somewhat summarily sort of fired from his Vatican jobs and from most of his rights and responsibilities as a cardinal during the course of this Vatican investigation, Vatican City State Prosecutor's investigation of corruption in the Vatican Secretary of State. So a cardinal was indicted by the Vatican City State for financial crimes. And I thought that was completely unprecedented. I, I later found out that there was a cardinal in the early 18th century who, who was similarly indicted and tried and actually imprisoned. But still, it's been, you know, 300 years um, since this has happened before. But a cardinal was indicted by the Vatican City State along with um, business people who we have been talking about on the show, Gianluigi Torzi and Raffaele Mincioni and my girl, Cece Maragna, and um, other Vatican officials as well. And now we are going to have what seems like a very big trial. So what I don't want to do today is get like very deep into the weeds of every single aspect of this and all of the twists and turns and minutiae, because you can read about that at our site if you want to. Um, 
what I want to do instead is sort of talk about like what this means, what's going to happen, um, and sort of what we can take away from it about what's happening in, inside the Vatican City state on the whole, inside sort of the Holy See on the whole, and then in a certain way kind of what it means for us as Catholics in our relationship to the church. Sure. And and I mean, I think first things first, the uh, the, the first hearing for this trial is on July 27th, and I, I think that's going to function as basically an arraignment hearing yeah that mm-hmm. you know the the vatican prosecutors have dropped this 493 page is what i heard uh yeah basically charging file mm-hmm. on on giuseppe pignatone who's the the chief judge of the vatican city state tribunal um and and i think what we can expect to see on july 27th is basically a well we've got these 10 people that we're indicting and are going to charge and prosecute here's what each one of them you know fleshing out the sort of charges against each one of them because what's been released is sort of the headline charges of embezzlement extortion fraud Mm -hmm. forgery abusive office whatever it is so i think fleshing out a little bit about who's accused of what is probably what's going to happen on july 27th and and there will probably then be a, at least a month or six week gap uh, i think before anything else happens because of course nothing happens in the vatican city state in august in it august just doesn't, right exactly the, the mm-hmm. city closes i mean this is and this is perfectly ordinary in in italy you know that right. rome generally empties out um I, I think the first interesting question that i'm looking to see answered is who's going to actually show up on july 27th because very few of the people charged are actually physically in the vatican city state or in the custody of um police that and could be compelled to attend so i think we can we can likely expect to see the two clerics who've been charged cardinal becciu and monsignor maro carlino uh, mm-hmm. who is also a former senior official the secretary of state who worked for cardinal becciu for a number of years i think we can probably expect to see fabrizio tirabassi who is mm-hmm. the layman who is in charge of administering the Secretary of State's investments, and we've written a lot about. In fact, um, you know, I don't want to get misty-eyed with nostalgia here, but we, <laughs> in our time, we've broken some we've pretty big news about him. I, of, uh, yeah, mm-hmm. I, I don't want to say that some of the stories we broke about Mr. Tirabazzi have led to the charges that have been brought. Well, let's just say this. Let's talk about that for a second, because I, I, I don't want to talk about an elephant in the room, and you know that I never like spiking the football. But Ed, one thing that I have said already, and I think is true, is that... Um, you and I have been covering this Vatican financial scandal um, for several years now. And um, really, Ed, in a certain way, you are unique among journalists in the world in that you and I think probably a journalist at the Financial Times and maybe one or two others have been um, sort of am- among the foremost researchers and mappers of the scandal um, going into – uh, bank records and corporate filings and, um, you know, building a series of whiteboards that, you know, with, with strings and arrows that, it, you know, at, at, time look crazy, at times look crazy, but which fundamentally have mapped out a lot of the connections that are indeed in the indictment file. So that, I mean, that doesn't mean, uh, you know, what I'm not seeing is, you know, hey, Ed, you know, you, you did this. But in a certain way, I do think the reporting that we have done together and the, and the, the research that you have led along with a few other journalists has been, I think, instrumental in mapping out this story. And and that is, I mean, first of all, that's just kind of cool, right? I mean, that's just neat to be able to contribute that to the life of the church. But I think it's worth saying now, because as we sort of break down, break this down and talk about what it means, part of that, part of the way in which this unfolded, I think is a part of the story. The fact that there, there was um, an inclination on the part, there was and has been an inclination on, on the part of the Pope to um, make reform within the Roman Curia in terms of financial administration, financial accountability. But the fact that what we have seen as we sort of look at the, the, the 
trajectory of the Pope's efforts towards financial reform and financial accountability for the whole of his papacy is that sort of internal will is not always sufficient, um, is often insufficient because of the inertia and uh, of a bureaucracy the size of the Vatican City State and with the sort of customs and traditions as ancient and storied as that of the Vatican City State. And so it's one can have a lot of will as a sort of internal leader and even with uh, gathering others around him to sort of make uh, reform. But I think one of the things we've seen here that's unique and I think interesting is the way in which um, in sort of internal will towards reform coupled with uh, a mechanism of public accountability, in this case journalism, ha- have sort of worked together to ensure that Vatican City state prosecutors have been um, empowered and protected and sort of able uh, to move forward in the way that they have in this direction. The Holy Father internally, um, journalism, and I'm not just saying us, but sort of journalism and a watchful journalistic eye outside, kind of paying attention to each piece and reporting things that um, you know, those who would wish to cover up a story like this would not wish to be in the public eye. Together, those two things, I think, have coupled to bring things to fruition. And, and I do think that's kind of part of the story, because that's a, a change in a lot of ways for the way the Vatican City State has operated. I, I think that's right. And it's also, I mean, to be clear, this is something Pope Francis didn't just invite, he asked for. I remember when the first big breaks in this uh, in this story were beginning to happen in the autumn of uh, 2019. And Pope Francis was asked about, you know, what do you think about all these media reports of, you know, financial corruption involving the Secretary of State? And what Pope Francis told journalists was, well, you're journalists, investigate them. Right. You know, mm-hmm. make, yeah, I'm not right. going to sit here and tell you what I think happened because I, you know, it's not yeah. my job. My job as... Similar to what he said on sex abuse stuff, you know, where the Pope said journalists should do their jobs. He said similar things on, fi- on financial stories. Exactly. And it's quite right that the Pope mm-hmm. shouldn't, you know, if you like, um, reach a snap decision because he's ultimately the scene, you know, the ultimate judicial figure in all of this. So, you know, he, he basically said journalism has a public accountability function, go do your jobs. Right. Um, so I, I do think that that is an interesting way in which this, this story has unfolded and I think will continue to unfold. Uh, and that's great. And, you know, to the extent to which we or anyone else can be willing collaborators with the Roman pontiff in these matters, I'm, I'm very pleased about it. I'm, I'm grateful that we can play a small part. So that's well, yeah, good. I mean, what I think is most interesting about it is the way in which those sort of internal and external dynamics complement each other. Journalists who were who would be beating a sort of drum on issues that they think are important, um, you know, but without a sort of internal will to resolve them would not get anywhere. And at, at the same time, I think we've seen that an internal will to get anywhere without um, the, uh, the bolster of public accountability um, is sort of too easily slowed within the gears of the machine. Absolutely. For me, that raises questions even about the um, about issues w- with regard to sort of the church's reform on clerical sexual abuse issues, where you have seen far many more journalists beating the drum from the outside. But, um, you know, a lot of people saying that there's not resolution, there's not sort of comparable resolution on any number of open questions with regard to clerical sexual abuse. So will this um, kind of embolden, will this indictment kind of embolden um, uh, mechanisms of public accountability on that issue, uh, or is there some sort of categorical difference? Because there are a lot of unanswered questions about the Holy See's, you know, in, in the McCarrick Report, unanswered questions about the money, unanswered questions about Vatican personnel who've been accused of serious misconduct, um, and all those things have been brought to light and then sort of stalled, uh, which is different from what's happened here. Yeah, I, I think that's right. And, you know, we'll we'll see if this is the beginning of a new, of a new dynamic in how um, internal governance aimed at reform is exercised uh, in relation to the sort of constellation of Catholic society around the official right. mechanism of governance. And, and I hope it's, you know, I hope it's the turning of a page in the beginning of a new, much more, I mean, not consciously collaborative, but um, left hand, right hand, 
uh, balance. That's, I mean, that's what happens in a healthy society is that a healthy society has different sectors, different members, and they all perform their function. And if they're all performing their function well, things go better. That's, that's how it works. So I, I hope that's what we're looking at. We, we will see, I guess. I, I think we'll get our, our, a good idea of how um, receptive the institutional church, especially in Rome, is to this kind of left-hand, right-hand collaboration on accountability. Mm-hmm. Um, I, and I think the first peak we'll get at that is is this trial. You know, yeah. it, it remains to be seen how much of the evidence will be aired in open court, how much of the defense will be aired in open court, how, um, how in-depth the trial will be. You know, there are no guarantees there. I'm, I'm, I mean, compared to where I've been at different points in the last sort of five, six years as we've been covering this, I'm wildly optimistic compared to where I've been at my lower ebbs. Sure. Um, because we've got actual indictments now, which is huge. And as you said, not, not so much historically unprecedented, but certainly unprecedented in the modern era. Um, but at the same time, you know, we've we've had senior figures like, for example, Cardinal Perolini said that, you know, this trial is going to happen and he, for his part, hopes it will be brief. And mm-hmm. I absolutely and sincerely hope it is not anything close to brief, because if you've got a 500 page charge sheet, you can't possibly deal with that in a credible way. Briefly. That Right. That, and I mean, you've got you've got 10 defendants, right? I mean, yeah. um, and and presumably they're all it seems that they're all going to have one trial, but we actually don't have a sort of procedural roadmap for what's about to happen. No, because we've never done it before. Um, right. So it, it will be interesting to see how that plays out. I mean, again, it also it's not at all clear, as I was as I was starting to say earlier. Yeah, all of that was a parenthesis. Let's go back to Tirabasi. I'm sorry I made that big parenthesis. No, sure, it's fine. It. But so if you can expect sort of the people who who work at the Vatican, at least nominally, um, which is Betu, <laughs> Carlino, Tirabasi, if you could sort of say those are the three most likely to actually appear in the courtroom to face charges Mm -hmm. um there's a whole another tier of people who it's not at all clear to me that they they will show up in court i mean um cecilia maragna uh the vatican tried to have her extradited from italy uh late last year and then basically gave up on the attempt in january because they realized it wasn't going to happen i would be i'd call her attendance in court a coin toss she has as i've mentioned before the glint of the ancient mariner in her eye (laughs) and um I, i would describe her as a as an interesting, perhaps tempestuous individual. Um, and I'd, I'd call it even odds on whether she says, why on earth am I going to go to the Vatican City to face trial on charges I've declared myself to be innocent of? Right. I don't have to. I'm not going to. You can't make me. Right. Um, but on the other hand, she might say, well, no, I'm going to go there and clear my name and I'm not going to be made anyone's scapegoat. And I'm going to turn up and tell people exactly what I saw and exactly what I heard and exactly what I did and on whose orders. And if she does that, that will be very interesting because she's the one who's said publicly that Cardinal Betchew, when she was working for him as basically a spy, um, wasn't just doing things for the secretary of state in, you know, diplomatic trouble spots in the world like Africa or, or the, or the Gulf States, the middle East, but she was on Betchew's order spying on senior officials in the Roman Curia for him. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So if she turns up and says who she was spying on, um, and why that could be very interesting. So we'll see. Um, Jan Luigi Torzi, uh, who's, if you like the guy at the, at the middle of all of this, although not certainly by no means at the top of the food chain in all of this, I'd say he's also even odds. Um, I don't think he'll be there in July 27th. He may eventually put in an appearance in court. And the reason is he's currently in custody in London, awaiting extradition to the Italian Republic to face similar charges there. Now, assuming his 
extradition hearing in London concludes reasonably soon, um, they definitely don't go on a summer recess. Uh, he could be popped in the post back to Rome uh, in fairly short order, um, in which case it just comes down to the um, the Italian court's decision whether or not they want to basically lend him over the Tiber to face charges there before continuing with his trial in Rome. So again, even split. Raffaele Mincioni, who is the gentleman who managed uh, investments, quote-unquote, uh, for the Holy See for a number of years and sold them the, the famous London building. I, I was in touch with a, a spokesman of his earlier today to try and feel out his likely attendance, and he was giving nothing away. I would put his attendance, uh, the chances of his attendance, very low. Um, he's already suing the Secretary of State in the High Court of England and Wales, seeking declaratory relief that he acted appropriately in all things. So if he's got a case that he's trying to bring to court in London already, I'm pretty sure he's going to say, I've I've already, you know, we already have a court case on this teed up in London. That's where the building was. That's where the business was done. If you want to fight me on this, you come to London and we'll see. Um, and, and, you know, as for the rest, the sort of Enrico Crossos of the world, uh, you know, it, it remains to be seen. Again, these people are sort of at large in Italy. I think now that the, the Italian financial police uh, appear to be backstopping the Vatican prosecutor's investigation and the, the co- level of cooperation between the two appears to be pretty close right now. I would say that Italy's likely to no longer be a safe place for people to hide from Vatican charges. I'd say you, you've got a good chance of being extradited now, even if you didn't before. So that might sway things. But again, this is this is sort of the big first indicators. Who's going to show up in court? And that will determine, I think, a lot the credibility of this trial. Because if no one shows up and no one mounts a defense, well, then the prosecution doesn't have to do all that much to prove guilt because the charges are effectively going unanswered. And then you could end up with what Cardinal Paralina City hopes for, which is a very brief trial indeed, which I think would be a real shame because I think what's really interesting here is not exactly what happened with this sort of London building and the sale to the Secretary of State because um, hilarious and complicated as that particular process was, I think we fleshed that out by now. I think everyone's got anyone who wants to have a good handle on what happened there has got one. And if you don't have one and would like one, read the pillar. You, you will know all you need to know. Um, I think what's really interesting and potentially interesting about this trial is what's underneath this. You look at people like Enrico Crosso, who have been charged. Um, he's He was not in the middle of the London property deal. He was in the middle of the Secretary of State's entire investment strategy. So what he could end up being asked to talk about, I think, would be very interesting. And it would go well beyond this one transaction that sort of kicked off this investigation. Um, there's a lot of interesting stuff to be uncovered here. And, and I hope that, you know, we will, we will see what we've been hoping for, which is everyone gets their day in court because that's in the end, what justice is about is it's not about presuming anyone's innocence or guilt. It's about saying, well, here's very reasonable grounds for suspicion, very reasonable grounds for suspicion. Let's get to the truth. And you do that in a full and transparent legal way. So I'm, I'm, I'm guardedly hopeful. I mean, is it wrong that I'm also a little bit just morbidly curious at this point? I mean, I feel like I know these people. I mean, a lot of them right, have right. been basically living in my head for five years. Like, I I want to see him show up in court. I want to hear him talk about this stuff. Is well, that this weird? Is, what's is that about, wrong? Well, no, it's not wrong. What's about to happen is that um, we've read the book, and um, now we're about to see the movie. And uh, we want to find out if the movie is anything like, uh, in terms of the characters and their, you know, like, I have a feeling... 
that Cece Maragna is not going to be the big-haired, gum-cracking Jersey girl that I have created her to be, and I'm going to have to sort of deal with that. Oh, she's not. Um, no, I'm certain of it. I've fact, watched a lot of footage of Cecilia Maragna. Yeah. She is not that. Yeah, right, I know. But even when I see things of her, I still sort of like make a, make, make a separation, right? So, uh, yeah, so no, I mean, it's that. But, but, I mean, going back to that transparency and even to this curiosity, one thing that's going to be different about this from, say, the, for example, the, the, the trial or the penal process of Theodore McCarrick is that this is not a um, this is not a CDF trial or a trial of um, you know another court of the Roman Curia. This is a Vatican City State trial, which means that it will be um, an open court. Similar, I mean, there have been some other criminal trials in the Vatican City State lately, but rather than sort of all of this playing out um, privately, as do canonical trials, this as a criminal trial will play out in a public way, uh, by which we'll be able to sort of know. What testimony is given in open court? Um, what we won't know is what deals are given beforehand. We we do have a sense. I think we have a pretty good sense that, for example, Monsignor Perlaska sort of was among those who we, we've known for some time was among those who sort of turned state's evidence and was providing a lot of details to prosecutors. Um, we won't know who else, uh, who among the indicted, decides to make a deal for themselves between now and the beginning of trial. But um, but we will be able to see sort of what evidence is provided in open court, and and that will allow, I think, a, a, a very interesting sort of mapping of what uh, what happened at each stage. And, and I, I suspect a lot of the confirmation of what we're, we're able to say has happened at each stage. But, you know, there will probably be some quirks and there will be just a way of, of seeing this unfold that will give insight into the both the ordinary and fundamentally you know, extraordinary um, ways of being inside the Secretary of State that I think are, are, are interesting. I think it's exactly true. Um, and, and one of the, I mean, the sort of surprise inclusion of, of the, the indictees, uh, so to speak, were, were um, uh, Rene Brulhart and uh, Tommaso de Ruzza, who are the past president and director of the Vatican's Financial Intelligence Authority, uh, neither of whom, I mean, both of whose departure from the AIF, now ASIF, uh, was very much on my radar and something that, you know, we we talked about and covered, we've covered and, and all of that. Um, but I wasn't expecting to see charges against them, certainly not against Brulhart. Tommaso, I was always a little bit on the fence about because they, they seized a lot of stuff of his in 2019, but Brulhart, I, I, I was not expecting to see, see charges made there. Um, and this really touches the international credibility of the Holy See's entire um, financial institutions, because basically, if if the AIF doesn't work, and if the heads of the AIF are abusing their office, which is what they're charged with, then nothing can be said to work. I mean, it's interesting. I was reading the sort of digest of the charges against them. And basically what seems to have been alleged by the prosecutors is that when all of this crazy stuff was going down around Tortsy and allegations of extortion for control of the London building and the idea that they, he was demanding, you know, an extra 15 million and the secretary of state basically decided to pay him. And the investigation had already uh, was, was getting close to getting started that the AIF, Basically, and then again, this is not what I'm saying happened. This is what I'm saying. I've understood the charge sheet to be the AF basically winked at the f the backdating and forging of documents authorizing the payment to sort of make mm -hmm. the problem go away, which is, if true, a huge deal. You know, Rene Brulhart, let's be clear, is not a sort of 
you know, shifty Italian businessman with a questionable background, which is certainly the case with several of the people who've been indicted. Rene Bruhlhardt is a Swiss lawyer who has an impeccable international reputation in terms of financial reform. I mean, the guy ran the, the Liechtenstein Financial Intelligence Authority before he came to the Vatican and cleaned that up, turned it from a sort of, you know, money laundering principality into a widely respected albeit tax haven of a, of a banking center. Um, so he's got a lot to play for here. I mean, he's got a legitimate um, reputation and career outside of the Vatican that he's going to be looking to defend. So how all of that plays out will be very interesting to see. Um, you know, a, lo- a lot of people have, have asked me, and I'm sure they've asked you in the last week about this and said, you know, well, how terrible is this for the Vatican? How bad a look is this for them? How disastrous is this for the Holy See's credibility on all of this? You know, is anyone ever going to give to Peter's Pence again on the back of all of this? And I mean, I, I get that. I get that reaction that, you know, well, this is just confirmation of what we've known all along, that the whole system's corrupt and all that. I, I, I understand and hear that reaction, but I'll be honest with you, I go entirely the other way with it. Yeah, which I is, have the complete opposite perspective. Like, yeah. it, I have more confidence in the Vatican's financial institutions and prosecutorial mechanisms now than I have ever had. I mean, is mm-hmm. this a, are they airing all their dirty laundry in public? Absolutely. But hey, they're doing it. They're doing it. They're dealing with their dirty laundry. There are plenty of countries right. in the world that would not do this. Right. What the Vatican's doing right now. So, you know, is it going to be ugly taking this Band-Aid off? Absolutely. But, you know, it's never been done before. I mean, no one can question, and people have, people have questioned repeatedly the sort of sincerity of Pope Francis' financial reform program, which he started in 2014 when he came in and, you know, cycled through the sort of first wave of the Pell reforms, which were batted back, mostly by Cardinal Perilene and Cardinal Betchew. Um, But the tides come back in again in a big way i mean in a much bigger way than i think anyone could could have ever met i was speaking to a guy who worked at the secretariat for the economy during the pell years uh over over these last few days and he said never never in my wildest dreams did i imagine i would see angelo betchu in a courtroom like he right. said this is just unthinkable right and i mean it's crazy he was saying that been... in a great way like he was saying yeah. it's better than i could ever have hoped we have been talking about that as a necessary step towards the resolution of this whole affair now for several years, Ed. And, and even while talking about it as a necessary step, I always believed it wasn't going to happen. I mean, I always believed it wasn't going to happen and, and we weren't going to get to this point. I guess the question is, you know, we have suggested that there's need for, you know, I think there are people who disagree, but we have suggested, certainly Cardinal Pell uh, suggested that there's need for sort of um, system systematic reform of like processes inside the uh, the various uh, organs of the of the Roman Curia um, to sort of modernize their approaches to uh, to finances to supervision to spending thresholds and limits and those kinds of things the question is will this be a one-off um, or will this trial become a thing which intensifies and um, speeds up the reform process which has probably begun only you know very seminally seminally up to the up, up to this point I mean, that's right. And I, we, we covered uh, last month, I, I wrote a thing, um, having talked to a couple of people who were working in the Secretary of the Economy now and the Secretary of State, and APSA and similar things. And they've said that the level of cooperation then, June, um, was as bad between the Secretary for the Economy and the Secretary of State as it ever been. Right. I mean, there are people who are saying the Secretary of State was supposed to be doing follow new, new rules, and they just weren't following the new rules, or, or at least they're just not there doing was an allegation that they weren't following the new rules. Now, later, I think that some uh, figures in the Secretary of State said, oh, yeah, we are, we are. But there's still a lot of suspicion about the degree to which they actually are following the new rules and complying with what was said to be done. So the question is, if there, if there are convictions here, will that catalyze an accelerated course of 
um, serious sort of reform and, and renewal and updating of these approaches? Or will this, is, it, is this a scapegoat trial? Yeah, I mean, the, the, there is the question of, is this, is this trial going to be the means by which all the bodies are dug up? Or is this trial going to be the means by which you throw more dirt over them and try and bury them for good and for all? And and I think that's a that's a legitimate and open question, and we'll get answers to it when we can. Um, we'll see. I mean, I think a lot will rest on the Vatican City State Tribunal and the extent to which it's really willing to to go at this hard. I mean, so far they seem to not be sparing anyone. Um, you know, I, one thing I keep coming back to, you know, you said if there are convictions, is this going to mark a change or anything? And that will depend entirely on what kind of convictions they are. If everybody gets a sort of slappy wristy. You know, you did some bad things, and you didn't follow proper procedure, and that was bad. And the church lost three hundred million, but you know, whatever. But the important, you know, you you should be more careful next time, please. You know, that's not going to do anything for anyone. I the Moneyball report on the Holy See's financial institutions, which was released in June, um, made the particular point, uh, and this is thing I come back to. It said uh, when there are trials for money laundering and uh, similar accusations in the Vatican. This is what the report said. Actual sanctions imposed in these cases where there have been convictions are below the statutory thresholds for the money laundering offense and appear rather minimal. Arguably, they are not proportionate or dissuasive. So that's got to change. The Vatican court needs to be willing to hand down the kind of time in the case of convictions that you'd get if you'd committed these crimes in any other financial jurisdiction. And that's going to be the sort of final rubber meeting the road in all of this is, you know, it's not enough to say, well, you're going to do six months of house arrest in the Vatican, you know, if you're found guilty of embezzlement and abuse of office. Well, and, I don't know. I mean, I think that's about standard for uh, uh, the the CEO of a, of a big sort of bank or Fortune 500 company in the United States. I'm pretty think. sure that's, Bernie Madoff died in jail. Bernie Madoff died in jail, but, but that's a, a, a bit different. I think there are any number of white collar criminals who end up with exactly six months of house arrest, although not in the Vatican. But I, but I do understand your point to be sure. Yeah, I, yeah. You, you get the punishment's got to fit the crime, and it's got to do so by international standards if this is going to have any teeth. But you know, and mm-hmm. maybe it will. I don't know. We'll see. Yeah. I'm again. I'm. There are all sorts of reasons to fear the worst, or at least be extremely cautious. But you know, again, anytime we floated the idea in the last five years that one day Cardinal Betsy would be in a courtroom facing charges of financial corruption, everyone told us we were nuts. So yeah. we're already there. We're through the looking glass already. So why not go all the way? Indeed. Now, how are you answering the question, which I think you're hearing too, that that I'm hearing often or ans- or just responding to um, people for whom this, uh, the, the, the sort of exposure of dirty laundry, as it were, is a um, an impediment or a challenge to faith? How, how are you responding to that? I mean, it is. Yeah, it, it mean, is. Uh, is it scandal? It is. Is it more yeah. of an impediment or a scandal to my faith than, for example, living through the McCarrick scandal or the Spotlight scandals? No, no. But I think from, nowhere I near. Think, I, I'm hearing from people who say that you know, oh, it's just another, just another thing. It you is know, just, just another, another thing. thing. But uh, yeah. you know, this is okay. I'm going to say this, and it's going to sound extremely gloomy and bleak, but I really don't mean it that way. I, yeah. I really don't mean it that way. Which is that this is that what we've gone through in the church in the last twenty years. Um, with, you know, seemingly rolling major scandal after major scandal is this is the church coming into the modern world as a global society that the reality is things like that. It's not that things like this never happened before, 
They've always happened for as long as the church has been a major global institution. That's just the reality. The church is surely divine, but it is also human, that it has this dual nature. And the human part has always been sinful, corrupt, prone to every temptation that all of mankind is. What's changed is not that the church has gotten worse. I don't think the church has particularly gotten better either. But that we now live in a world where there is such a thing as media. There's such a thing as Catholic media. There's such a thing as external scrutiny of what goes on in ecclesiastical affairs, that all of this is just part of the world. You know, governments are facing scrutiny in a way that they never did 50 years ago. You know, yeah. it, it, this yeah. is part of, you know, the, when when Vatican Council II met and they recognized themselves as at the end of an era and the beginning of a new one, this is part of the new era, is that the church is living in an era of scrutiny and transparency, willingly or otherwise, um, that is unprecedented in history, and the church is neither spared nor singled out in in that turning of the of the sort of societal page. I mean, it does present challenges to faith that we have to, I think, have a much more adult faith in the way that we think about the church. It's no longer possible to think of the church as just, and don't get me wrong, I'm not saying it's a bad thing, it's how I'd like to live my faith most of the time if I could, to think of the church just as our parish that you know it, it used to be the case that a catholic could go their whole lives with never hearing a word that came out of rome because rome was a very long way away and you relied on the several strata of hierarchy to filter that through and if it needed to get to you it wouldn't you'd hear it from your parish priest on a sunday we don't live in that world anymore and you know it was there once a simpler time sure but you know that's the thing history's always moving and the church is always reforming um i'd like to think that the bonus trade-off of this wider uh, sort of push for transparency from the outside of this new reality the church is living in is that while we are gaining a a close and painful insight into the mass scandals of the past be they financial or sexual or otherwise that what we're gaining in return is the church is becoming better equipped to prevent mass systemic scandals in the future that as the church, you know, the church has the opportunity to learn from her mistakes. Now, in the past, could there have been a gigantic sexual abuse scandal in an archdiocese like Boston, like was highlighted in the spotlight stuff? You know, yeah, but 100 years ago, there would have been no mechanism for the global church to learn any lessons from that. Now there are. So, you know, it's it there is there is a there is a tension there between the painful reality, but also the hope that we can bring more good out of it as a result. Yeah, that's right. Can you That's hear right. all this thunder and lightning on my end? I can. It's awesome, actually. It's 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 really awesome. Um, and because you're in a closet in the thunder and lightning, I, I think it's one of the reasons why we should probably uh, call it uh, a show. But before we do that, um, we're going to play a little game if you would like. I would. I mean, we're, we're under time. I don't want to shortchange anyone, but okay. Okay. I just made up this game, so I don't even know if it's going to be any. I, I don't even know if it's going to be any fun. But I figure we could try it and uh, and see. And and the game is predicated on the notion that you, Ed, are um, you. I you would I would say. I mean, even right now, you're wearing the a sweatshirt of the um, minor league team, your local minor league team. You are a minor league man. Is that right? Uh, well, a minor uh, culturally, nope, let me put that differently. Uh, no, let me put that differently. I, 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 you, you could are call a me fan a, of the minor league. I am. I'm a minor league talent at best, JD. I'm willing to admit it. No, I, no, 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 no. I realize now how that sounds. You are you are a fan of the minor league, is that right? I am a, I am a fan of baseball, and uh, the the older I get, and the more I see what MLB is doing to the game, the more you know your local ballpark is the place where you're going to see the best baseball. 
so yes, I I am culturally much more drawn to the minor leagues now than I am to to the majors. Okay, well we're gonna play um, we're gonna play a little game. I have ten cities with minor league teams in them um, before me. A list of ten cities with minor league teams, and I'm going to um, I'm gonna give you um, two options for what the team name could be of the minor league team in that city. And you're gonna you're gonna not just take a stab at what you think it is, but give a little justification. Each of these can be justified. Each of the potential names here can be justified or explained. And so I'm going to give you a city and two options. You're going to choose one, and then you're going to tell me why you think that it might indeed be that. I love this game. Okay. All right. Are you ready? And because you are at your indisclosed location, we're going to start with a team in the in the state of, in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, um, if you don't mind. I, that's fine. I, 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 I don't know why you think that that those two facts would say okay good good enough okay so ed uh we're going to start with what is your minor league team scranton wilkesbury are we talking about the scranton wilkesbury uh electric volts or the scranton wilkesbury rail riders i am i am afraid i have to tell you i am well aware of the scranton wilkesbury rail riders i have in fact been to a game you have and why are they called the rail riders Can you uh, tell i think i mean there's there was quite a lot of heavy industry in that part of the country at one time, and I believe that Scranton is something of a railroad hub, I or was yeah. an industrial railroad hub. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's right. All right, okay, moving to the west and to the south, we're heading to Albuquerque. Uh, if you know it already, you can say, I'll give you two points if you just no, toss I don't it know out. Albuquerque. Okay, so we can have uh, the Albuquerque balloons or the Albuquerque isotopes. I'm definitely going to say it's the Albuquerque isotopes, okay. and this is presumably a nod to the Manhattan Project and it is the, indeed. the blowing up of nuclear things. It is indeed. It is the Albuquerque isotopes, but you might be interested to know that Albuquerque is the site of one of the largest hot air balloon festivals in the world, and thus my concocted name of the Albuquerque balloons. I like that. I, I that, thought about the, suggesting the Albuquerque hot air, but that might that seemed as if it would be too obvious. So, uh, so there we are. <laughs> okay, uh, we are headed back to the northeast, Ed, to Portland, Maine. Do you want to take a, a, a blind stab, or shall I give you some options? I'm afraid I, I not only am aware of the Portland, Maine Sea Dogs, but I have, <laughs> oh. thanks to my my dear friend and former colleague Christine Roussel, I have quite a lot of Portland Sea Dogs gear. I have a nice hat. I've got um, a a sea dog or sea lion uh, jerseyed puppy, which is going to be the first toy in the crib of my as yet unborn child. Wow. Um, I am I am familiar with the sea dogs. Okay, well, you are Ed, you are on a real roll here. You're 3 for 3 uh and uh and for two of those you needed no help. So that's like double points or whatever. I mean, you're really taking care of business. What do you know about New Hampshire? Uh very little. Very little. Terra incognita. Well, New Hampshire has a minor league team. It is either the New Hampshire choir, Quarrymen or the New Hampshire Fisher Cats. I'm going to say Fisher Cats. Well done. And Oh, okay. I wasn't even. I was going to tell you my reasoning why. I'd like to. And this is a very minor league reason, which is I was imagining what the cap badge would be Uh for those two, and you you get a you get a superior quality of cap badge. You do. And and my concocted names here. I mean, so I I picked Quarrymen obviously because New Hampshire is a granite state, and I thought maybe you'd. But uh, but you're quite right that Fisher Cats is a much sort of better mascot logo combo, isn't it? Yeah, I I could immediately picture what that hat looks like. You are just uh, you're just too good. It is too good. Okay. Um, well, let's go back to the southwest, to El Paso. Um, are we talking, Ed, about the El Paso uh, Roadrunners or the El Paso Chihuahuas? Uh, here again, I have to I have to <laughs> disclose. I, I have an El Paso Chihuahuas hat. Um, I, I flew through El Paso. Well, I didn't fly through El Paso. I flew to El Paso to get in a car and drive. Um, some distance away to another state and another diocese on one occasion when I was still a, a canon lawyer just trying to earnestly apply my trade. 
And of course, I as I landed in El Paso Airport, there was some Chihuahuas gear, and I thought, well, that's a fetching mascot. I better buy a hat and go to a game. So I am again, I'm familiar with the El Paso Chihuahuas. Uh, well, there you have it. Okay, Ed, uh, let's move across the country to Florida. Uh, and let's go to a, a city I've never visited, and I suspect you haven't either, the city of Pensacola, uh, where we could have either the Pensacola Blue Wahoos or the Gulf Coast Riptide. Ooh, I I genuinely don't know this one, so it's going to be a coin toss. Um, I, I'm i going to say the Wahoos. Nailed it. Uh, that, that sounds faintly rude possibly politically incorrect and therefore you know why not <laughs> you nailed it the gulf coast coast riptide is a real team though it is uh, it was rather the um uh, the pensacola florida women's american football professional team in something that was called the women's spring football league which i believe is now out of business uh so oh. gulf coast riptide a, a real thing i was also thinking about maybe and if you can if you can get the answer to this i'll give you an extra point I was thinking about calling the team the Pensacola Flagpoles, and why would I have been thinking about that? Um, is it the home of the largest flagpole in the United States? No, Pensacola is what they call it the City of Five Flags, and that's because it was variously um, Spanish, British, French, American, and uh, something else that now I can't remember what. Um, but that was oh. my, uh, that's where I was coming from with that. Yeah, I, I kind of want to remember now. Oh, Spanish, oh, let's see if you can get the last one. Pensacola was Spanish, British, French, uh, American and what? Ed? Uh, uh, a nation. Yeah, you're not going to get it. Oh, rats. I was. Okay, what is it? Confederate. I'm... Pensacola oh. calls itself the City of Five Flagpoles because it was Spanish, French, British, American, and Confederate, which is an interesting one to I don't recognize material. No, neither do I. I don't recognize the sovereignty of the Confederacy. <laughs> neither do I. I'm seceded through an illegal act, so I it's am not surprised a real that they have. Okay, uh, but while we're in Florida, let's go to um, Jacksonville, where we can have the Jacksonville Bull Sharks or the Jacksonville Jumbo Shrimp. Oh, two very likely cat badges yes, here. Indeed. I'm, I'm going to go with Jumbo Shrimp. Dude, you are just taking care of business here. Now, would you have been more likely to get it wrong if I had given you as an option the Jacksonville Tebos, as I thought of doing? <laughs> I would have just, uh, out of amusement, opted for the Tebos. Fair enough, fair enough. Okay, Ed, uh, we only have two more left. You are doing very, very well. I believe you're batting 1,000. Uh, and uh, this next one I think you're probably going to get, but it's interesting nonetheless. The Richmond Ramparts? Or the Richmond Flying Squirrels? I hate to, again, have to declare an interest, <laughs> oh, but no. um, I've been... You see, the Richmond Flying Squirrels are in the same league as my beloved Bowie Bay Sox, and so I have seen many a time when my Bay Sox have put the whoop on the Richmond Flying Squirrels. So Now, why are they called that? Do you know? The Flying Squirrels? Mm-hmm. I, it, I, I have no idea. I have no idea. Well, well, I'll tell you why. It's a great minor league reason. In 2009, uh, the, Richmond, the owner of the Richmond Flying Squirrels, which at that time was called the Richmond Baseball Team, held a Name That Team contest to the Richmond Times-Dispatch, inviting readers to submit team names and then be voted upon. Uh, uh, other potential finalists were the Richmond Rockhoppers, the Richmond Hambones, although that was later uh, excluded because 
the NAACP said that that could be seen as a derogatory term until it was excluded. I don't exactly know the history of it. The Richmond Rhinos, the Richmond Flatheads, the Richmond Fl- Hush Puppies, but out of all of those, the Richmond Flying Squirrels prevailed. And there you have it. Um, I feel like some of the other options there would have been better, but whatever. Well, I, again, they're they're the enemy in, in my particular league of choice for the Miners, so, you know, I'm delighted for them to have their mascot. Let's head towards the Jazz City, New Orleans. The New Orleans Blue Notes or the New Orleans Baby Cakes? Oh, this is interesting because, of course, the historic minor league team of New Orleans was the Pelicans. And when they went defunct, the NBA expansion team swiped the name. Right, 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 right. right. So I, that's the team I know for New Orleans. Uh, uh, I'm going to go with the Blue Notes. Oh, I'm, I knew I'd get you. Aww. I knew I'd get you. Actually, Ed, the, the minor league team in New Orleans is the New Orleans Baby Cakes, referencing, of course, King Cakes oh. and uh, New Orleans affinity for that particularly uh, untasty dessert. I really wanted a thousand on, on this one. I'm very sorry. They were the New Orleans Zephyrs until 2016. Oh, but the New uh, Orleans two, Zephyrs from, were actually, they moved. They were the Denver Zephyrs for a long time. They long. were indeed. That's correct. You're correct. The Denver that. Zephyrs have uh, had a fantastic hat. It was green with a blue bill and a blue and silver Z across. The, I mean, they, they used to, there was, I know a company that make a lot of defunct minor league and, um, and other uh, defunct league team hats and they had they had a limited run of the Zephyrs ones and I couldn't order one fast enough it was I, that's mm. a it's a great hat they were a great team um, I I have uh, in my youth I went to a Zephyrs game in Denver I also have on my office wall I have a ball from Coors Field from opening day on the first season of the Rockies there ah oh, cool tell me how do you think the New Orleans Baby Cakes got their name I'm gonna say ownership interest in the catering business Oh, I'm very sorry. It was once again a name that team contest, mm-hmm. which seems to be the way of the world in minor league baseball, rebranded in the 2017 season. The Baby Cakes won out over other names such as the Crawfish, the King Cakes, the Night Owls, the Poe Boys, the Red Eyes, and the Tailgaters. Um, the, the voters of Louisiana felt that Baby Cakes was the way to go. And in a unique prom- promotion in 2017 when they renamed the team, any child born in the state of Louisiana in 2017 was eligible for what? a lifetime pass to Baby Cakes games. Everyone born in 2017 in Louisiana can go to Baby Cakes games for the rest of their life, and every such child uh, will be entered into a raffle wherein the winner will receive a full full four-year tuition scholarship to a state college in Louisiana upon their 18th birthday. Well, hot damn, that's a great deal. It is a very great deal, and it assures me of one thing. We here at the Pillar Podcast will not be doing a Name the Podcast Challenge, nor will we be giving anyone's child a full four-year scholarship to anything. That is absolutely true. But you have uh, been listening to us talk about the news of the church and great Catholic minor league baseball conversation. We'll be back next week. I'm your host and Pillar Editor-in-Chief, J.D. Flynn. I'm joined by my podcasting partner, Ed Condon, and uh, we'll see you next week.